Welcome to the one and only Interior Design Book Podcast. Decorating by the Book, hosted by Susie Chase from her dining room table in New York City. Join Susie for conversations about the latest and greatest interior design books with the authors who wrote them. Uh, my name is John Whelan. And I'm Oscar Proctor. And we have created a book together called Ateliers of Europe. Beginning in the Renaissance, ateliers were established as a place for European artists to work and teach their crafts. Centuries later, most of the spaces have disappeared, but as a select few continue to produce some of the world's most celebrated and sought-after objects, such as crystal, ceramics, wrought iron, fabric, bookbinding, mosaic, and wood paneling. This visually stunning love letter to the art of craft takes us inside Europe's most illustrious and in many cases endangered decorative arts workshops to profile how artisans continue to maintain the highest centuries-old standard of workmanship and creativity. So, John, you are a specialist in heritage design and creative direction. From 2017 to 2019, your company, the Guild of St. Luke, or San Luke, worked on some of France's most loved culinary and cultural institutions. So how did you come to discover the Atelier when you were restoring brasseries? Thank you, Susie. Uh, that's a very good question. Essentially, when you are restoring a historic monument, every piece that needs to be remade has to be made somewhere. And so if we're talking about an Art Nouveau molding or cornice that could be a decorative detail within one of the brasseries, you would need a specialist plaster company in order to remake that piece, which would generally mean moulding on site and then taking it back to the place of work in order to recreate it. What I quickly found when I was working on these projects was that there were very, very few companies that were actually capable of doing this. And so it was really through Googling and a process of trial and error that I found the companies that do this. And they're quite prestigious. They don't do a lot of advertising. They're quite removed uh, public view, I would say. And it's almost a sort of scene for initiates. And it was kind of like pulling back the curtain on a world that I'd never really seen before. Um, and I found it very romantic, uh, poetic and inspiring. And I think that doing this large chapter of brasserie work, essentially, sowed the seed for the uh, for the book. So in the book, you made an observation I found interesting. You wrote that nearly every atelier you visited had exceptional natural light. But most importantly, there was an authenticity to the spaces that appeared to be a result of function over style. Can you talk a little bit about that? Modern offices, by contrast, often try and cajole you into thinking that this is a stylish or fun place to work. Whereas these ateliers really do the opposite, but in doing so, end up winning out. And so they are purely functional spaces um, with uh, the tools of the trade laid out in a way which is purely functional, but they end up looking like installations and they end up looking very timeless. And so there's something quite accidentally beautiful about an atelier workspace. And this was immediately apparent. Now, there is also a grandeur to the architecture because in order to house machinery and large objects, they tend to be uh, high ceiling spaces and natural light tends to flood 
in from above. So they frequently have skylights. This was a feature of late 19th century and early 20th century architecture for these spaces. And so they end up feeling beautiful just because of their volumes. Why have you chosen to describe this book as an atlas? We decided to describe it as an atlas purely to give it a a sort of like an ease of indexing. So we wanted people to be able to browse the book by country. And so you would be able to see the idiosyncrasies of a British atelier versus a French or an Italian atelier. They are clearly um, different in feel and tone, and you almost feel the national characteristics revealing themselves in each uh, location. And so that's why we did it. We wanted to be able to locate the ateliers on a map, and you would be able to essentially explore Europe via these categories. So how is the word workshop different from the word atelier? I tried to uh, explain that a little bit in the introduction. I I think that there's a danger of saying that using the word atelier is kind of like an affectation, um, because workshop would totally suffice in most usages. However, what we've attempted to highlight here are the most beautiful workshops in Europe and you know, if not the world. And so there's almost something slightly elevated about these places. And there's a tendency to use the word atelier rather than workshop um, as the elevated version. And so we decided to call it ateliers of Europe, not workshops of Europe, in order just to place the emphasis on the exquisiteness of the spaces and what is produced therein. Yeah, when I think of the word workshop, I think of something like in my garage, you know, where I hammer some nails. Yes. Uh, (laughs) You know, we we didn't want to seem snobbish by using the word atelier, um, but we hoped that this book would almost be an argument for it being a slightly different categorization of place, you know. And so if you had to differentiate between, you know, sort of the workshop garage versus the large, you know, sort of illustrious 100-year-old space, then this is how you would semantically differentiate. And Oscar, I love your work. You are a freelance photographer whose work has been included in a wide range of projects. Numerous design books, The World of Interiors, Architectural Digest, and The National Trust, to name a few. The photos in the book made me feel like I was right there discovering the space. And I think this has everything to do with the fact that you shot these spaces with zero setup. I can't imagine that was simple. Did you ever feel like you needed to rearrange something or adjust this or that in the space? I didn't actually feel like I needed to move anything around, really. I tend to move around the things rather than move them around um, as as an approach. Just touching a bit on what John said about natural light, you know, these spaces were, on the most part, designed to be used and worked in under daylight, you know, hence the architectural addition of large windows in the ceiling or wall or, or, or wherever. So actually, it was quite a natural process to just move in and not set anything up, you know. 
For a recent episode on the podcast, I interviewed Owen Hopkins, who wrote the book, The Brutalists. I learned so much about brutalism, and then my eye was drawn to page 278, Lenny Ag's Brutalist Studio in Dubendorf, Switzerland. And what grabbed me was the visual interconnection between the architecture of the studio and the metal furniture they create inside that studio. It's almost a continuous loop, if that makes any sense. Could you please chat a little bit about this? I just want to mention that it was actually Oscar's idea to feature Lenny in the book. I think that you had discovered uh, the company and and radioed into me uh, to suggest it. And it is uh, interesting that you note this, Susie, because it's a really it's one of the two contemporary counterpoises to what is uh, in general quite a historicist reading. In order to answer your question. I think you need to look at you know the nature of avant-garde Swiss design. There's something in the water clearly in Switzerland um, that just creates very strong, functional, modernist design. And Lenny is no exception. I think it was uh, Rudolf Lenny, the founder, who set this in motion. And then his son was actually the one who uh, commissioned the architect to to build this factory. And it's difficult to say what came first, the work or the factory, because they seem to create a permanent loop. The, the work feeds off the architecture and the architecture feeds off the work. And so uh, it's an extraordinary space that seems to um, live almost in a vacuum and a style unto itself. And that's why we found it you know, so unique and why we wanted to include it in the book. Lenny was a brilliant example of pushing a door that wasn't necessarily open upon arrival and finding something unbelievable, which were the locker rooms in the basement. And that ties in with your comment about total design in 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 within the spaces and and what that output is at the end in that the locker rooms themselves were completely decked out by Lenny I mean that maybe that sounds obvious now I say it but actually when we traveled around many of the ateliers when we would when we would look in the locker rooms or the kind of communal spaces we would find that perhaps they were less in keeping with what that final product was that they were creating. But there, the benches and the lockers and everything were these immaculate Lenny creations, but in their use. For me, that was a real kind of moment of, of, of awe, you know, yes. in, in that place. Yes. You know, the um, the Germans have a word for that, and it's Gesamtkunstwerk, you know, which means total artwork. And one can't help but feel that the Lenny factory is conceived and purpose-built and thought of in every single detail. And I think that you also find that rigour and discipline um, in their products. So it's quite an amazing place. Well, thank goodness uh, Rudolph Jr.'s wife, Doris continued with the company after he died. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, and she was she was a remarkable figure as well because she was a an internationally renowned photographer, um, kind of involved in the avant-garde art scene in Switzerland, which was quite prevalent worldwide. And it was her who attracted the, the famous American artist and sculptor, you know, Donald Judd. They still make Donald Judd's minimal furniture to this day. 
So in the book, you write a ramshackle courtyard of 18th century buildings in Vienna is home to the atelier and archives of the city's most revered maker of chandeliers and glassware, Lobmeyer. I am and others may be most familiar with the chandeliers and sconces in the foyer and auditorium at the Metropolitan Opera here in New York City. Please talk about this company that is still going after six generations. Um, it's interesting that you uh, use that quote with the word ramshackle. I had to explain to the the sixth generation of the Lobmeyer family that that was not an insult in the English language, um, and that ramshackle can actually mean uh, quaint and 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 be a positive thing because they weren't keen for that to be published. But um, it is quite extraordinary when you walk into these spaces. The contrast between the precision of the glassmaking, you know, versus the, you know, it's almost kind of like a, uh, it's like an old chateau. I mean, that would be a good way of describing it. It's like a Germanic uh, chateau in town. And within these barn-like spaces, they etch and um, and finish glass. And one of my favourite photographs by Oscar in the book is one of those famous chandeliers, the Starburst chandeliers, which are hung in the Metropolitan in New York. And it's just under a plastic sheet. I think that nicely sums up uh, you know, Oscar's um you know, sort of don't touch anything approach to photography in this book. That was an un- that was another wonderful pushing a door that wasn't open scenario. Yeah. <laughs> Oscar, talk about um, your photo of the archives in the attic. Well, that I mean, meeting Peter Rath up there was incredible, and John can tell you a bit more about him. But he actually opened drawers and doors for us. You know, and yeah. that was another that was another space which was aside from the perhaps more expected areas of the atelier, which gave us a full picture, I think, of of what what the production that took place and the design that took place. And, you know, I think that you don't immediately understand just looking at the pictures of the workshop quite how prestigious and quite what the history is behind these spaces. And so to find an archive like that really completed that story so beautifully. I, I think that we were stunned to find that that archive and to meet Peter. And he was just pulling original Adolf Lowe's and Joseph Hoffman uh, drawings for glassware. So those were the two most famous designers of the Wiener Werkstatt, you know, which was the turn of the century uh, proto-modernist movement, which was essentially the template for Art Deco going forward. So it's very significant. And just to see him bringing out these original uh, drawings without white gloves on, we were kind of like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> like, and it was, uh, it, was, it was very casual and very amazing. Uh, and we felt very privileged to be in that. It's funny that you use the word casual because every time I go to the opera here in New York City, I take a picture of the chandeliers every single time. And I don't know why. It's the same picture every time I go. They are just the most beautiful things I've ever seen. They are extraordinary. It's an absolute design classic. But uh, that might be the thing that which is most well known to you Um, in Vienna. They're not as well known as the glassware for example, is considered to be la référence of glassware worldwide and the designers that have created carafes and wine glasses throughout the years for Lobmeyer really make it stand out as a company. 
So, John, you wrote, an industrial estate in the South London suburb of Mitcham seems an unlikely place to find one of the largest inventories of 18th and 19th century chimney pieces and English country house furniture. How dreamy is Jam? Jam is very dreamy, and we're very much looking forward to doing our book launch on Thursday at the Pimlico Road premises, which is the shop. But the space that you have just described is the hangar and atelier. I think hangar is the the right word because it's about the size of an aerospace hangar. You know, there could be jumbo jets being worked on in there, um, but you literally just have rows and rows of categorized antique furniture. And then in a separate part, you have, I would call it the patination station, uh, where all of the uh, light fittings uh, that they create uh, based on original historic models. Um, they create these wonderful finishes of patinated brass, verdigris, um, antiques, nickel, and so forth. And this is a very artisanal process that they've mastered in order to bring in their new creations in line with the, the natural patina of the, of the antiques. It's interesting because in this book, I was so drawn to kind of the synergy between the building and what they make inside that building. And here, it's, it's as you said, a huge, enormous corrugated steel building, but inside are really old antiques. Yeah, I think it's that juxtaposition, that contrast, uh, which fascinated us. You know, Jam is actually a very well-known company and uh, a prosperous one. And so if you open the pages of World of Interiors, uh, you will frequently see uh, an advert, an impeccable advert uh, by the company. But very few people uh, know about uh, this space. And I think we're, we're some of the only people to have entered it and been allowed to shoot it. And so uh, it's exciting to be able to reveal that to a wider audience. I love that they also have a collection of rare ancient marbles. I think that's so cool. Yeah, they have a collection of rare ancient everything. Uh, <laughs> I think that I think I think uh, uh, Will is one of the biggest hoarders uh, I've ever met in a good way. In the best way. <laughs> in the best possible way. I think the thing that struck me in Jam, but they have a space where they do stonework and all of the dust is white, or marble and marble work and all of the dust is white, you know, and then you walk into walk into the next room where they where they do the, the patination station, as John called it, you know. Everything's kind of covered in a slightly sticky sort of surface you know and i think that that you know it was it was quite interesting to see an atelier at work where there were different things being produced actually we found that in all of the others it was it was one technique or one material being used and there they have various different areas producing different things which was it was interesting to see that working in synergy um, in the same place. Do you think they can do that because the space is so enormous? I think it definitely helps. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so one last workshop I would love to touch on is Atelier Lorenzi, a casting atelier. 
You talk about how every inch of the place is filled with plaster casts from the company's 2,000-strong catalog, along with the sarcophagus-like negatives from which they spring to life. You write about how the busts create a sensation that one is in a haunted house of history. It almost looks like some of the horror movie set designs and breathtakingly beautiful all at the same time. Uh, Lorenzi is an extraordinary uh, macabre place. It's... um the photos really do do it justice. This process of taking death masks, you know, so uh, casting the faces of of dead people is clearly a sort of Sherlock Holmes 19th century noir kind of thing to do. But they have decided to hang up all of these um, casts of, uh, of the faces of dead people and it just ends up looking like a horror set like you described but also eerily beautiful uh, there's something ethereal about a death mask they're not ho- as horrific as they might sound as i described them if you know what i mean oscar when you stepped into atelier lorenzi what was your first thought when you saw all these plaster casts the first thing that i saw was not the plaster casts there was another building off the side that where some people lived that had a fabulous staircase in, which is in the book, actually, that picture, I believe, um, as I, I have a kind of ongoing obsession with staircases. <laughs> so it's just because I kind of gravitate towards them. But then going into where the casts were and the plaster was being made, I mean, it, you know, it was just so beautiful. And the residue of the making there was really it, it was a it was one of the thicker surfaces of work if that makes sense that i saw in 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 really anywhere and not to say that it wasn't clean or that it wasn't maintained but it was just that that plaster had had left so many marks of human use and human making and creation over so many years it was a really particularly special one lorenzi for me i'm curious to hear about your ongoing obsession with staircases <laughs> <laughs> oh i mean you know the the staircases for me are incredibly photogenic i think um there's not really much more that i can say about it and you know also you could you know you can find a staircase pretty much anywhere other than perhaps a bungalow um so you know they are there are a lot of them about and they do vary immensely <laughs> and they and they also tying in i think to this residue i'll keep calling it of human presence stairs always bear the marks of use Always. And that is something which I think in interiors and in architecture and and in photography of buildings and spaces is quite often shied away from or, or not captured. You know, and I think that for me, real space is what drives my work and what drives my interest in taking pictures. Upstairs. Upstairs. Yes. (laughs) And actually everything. <laughs> yeah, don't worry, Susie. There's going to be a book uh, coming out you know, of Just Stairs. You know, yeah, we've been the book of stairs. So yeah. where can we find you both on the web and social media? Oscar, you go first. Um, well, my name, Oscar, with a K, Proctor, or Oscar.Proctor on Instagram, or OscarProctor.com on the internet. Mine is... GSL underscore 
Works, which is short for the Guild of St. Luke, so GSL. This book feels like an exclusive behind-the-scenes private tour of the custodians of ancestral techniques who continue to prop up the design industry. It's glorious. I cannot thank you enough for coming on Decorating by the Book podcast. Thank you, Susie. Thank you, Susie, for having us. Follow Decorating by the Book on Instagram. And thanks for listening to the one and only interior design book podcast, Decorating by the Book.